I think I can explain exactly how I feel about the American Rescue Plan. So there is a scene in Death Stranding <laughs> where a character approaches you with an object and <laughs> says, here, I brought you a metaphor. <laughs> That perfectly encapsulates how I feel being presented with the American Rescue Plan. What? Welcome to the Dove Panel. Listeners, thank you so much for supporting the show. If you'd like to help us out, become a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You get access to all the weekly bonus episodes and a discount on merch and the back catalog, and it helps us keep going. And the bonus episode from this week, Mondays, was um, a great one, extremely packed. It's the basically like a full regular episode. Plus another episode. Plus a plus a bonus interview. So like it double live album. Yeah. Over two hours, (laughs) essentially, of uh, why we need to page shut down the first part. All the three of us sitting down with Abby Cardis returning to the show and then B interviews Abdullah Shihapar mm-hmm. about paid shutdowns and, and a number of other things, including like some of the very bad ways that other, let's say, public health influencers have been selling <laughs> the idea that we don't need a paid shutdown. Some whiny crybaby MD PhDs online. Vinay Prasad. <laughs> but anyways, back to what we have today. Today is the one-year anniversary of the WHO declaring that we are in a pandemic. Or as Mickey Willis of the Plandemic documentary likes to say, the WHO declared <laughs> that we were in an official pandemic. <laughs> the WHO declared, I won't get fooled ago. again. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. Yeah. And we would, you know, we would do something big in retrospective, but that's basically what we've been doing this whole time anyway. So, you know, yeah, Yeah. you know, it's who marks who marks these things with time anymore anyway. I mean, that, that that's really it's like what 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 of what value is chronology as a measurement tool now? I mean, it's it's you mark the passage of these things with with everything else. I mean, that's the whole thing point of a pandemic is it disrupts chronology so i'm like the anniversary it's like no the the, the, the five hundred thousand deaths like that's that's the that's the marker yeah. if anything like it's not mm-hmm. it's not time you know Definitely. i think the thing for me that i keep stressing to myself whenever i there's been like you know a, like at least a dozen huge anthology collections that are all very well designed to look as if they've been pulled straight from an Instagram infographic carousel where it's like, you know, the gradient background and good typography and it's all these cultural figures reflecting on the past year. And not once have I heard someone mention like, it's wild that 500,000 people died of COVID quicker than this one year anniversary. Because that in and of itself, the fact that that took less than a year. I mean, and that's just in the United States. That's just in the United States. Exactly. It's, I don't know, it's part of this whole process of just pretending that it's 
over, right? This is the this is the myth making. We're making the meaning of of COVID being over. If you if you look back on it, then it can't possibly be a problem that you have to deal with going forward, right? Right, and and you know, I think we've gotten that sense from the. I mean, not only the it's not it's the thing is it's not rhetorical. Um, COVID is not, is being declared over not merely in a rhetorical sense, but in terms of like the the policies that state and federal governments are like pursuing in the United States. I mean, they're, they're effectively as as testing has declined. There's there I think is a very real possibility that most of the infrastructure we use to like recognize what's going on is going to be decommissioned. I think right. there's like COVID is being decommissioned. Yeah, I mean there's. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was going to say there's no greater monument to uh, the interpretation of like COVID as this now in the process of passing thing. COVID as a uh, pandemic in the process of its ending being produced than, <laughs> I mean, the American Rescue Plan yeah. itself. Yeah. Is that what it's called? American Rescue Plan? I always yep. forget. Yeah. yeah. We're some, some are calling it ARP, right? <laughs> I oh, guess. God. Oh. But yeah, th- this. Yeah. Oh. Well, and, Slap and another I feel A like on there. What's your hurry? Come on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, no, I feel like no, but this is this is actually this sense of sense, a sense of an ending, I guess, is very crucial to the way that, that I think this piece of legislation is being interpreted, which is I think that there are sort of like two poles of interpretation of like what this thing that just passed means. And, and we'll get into the details of it in a second, but I think it's like worth like laying these out. On the one hand, I think you have a sort of um, like halcyon like view of it, which is you know this is this is a radical departure for Democrats. It's like the <laughs> mm. land of milk and honey. Uh, that this is like a a break in time that signals that the Democratic Party is somehow like on a different political trajectory, and there's like we are we are only increasing in one direction and it's not the direction we were in the other so i i don't agree with that for reasons that will become (laughs) clear um but the other take and this one it has i think more gravitas although it is also kind of annoying um i think it has closer uh relationship to the truth which is uh Enjoy it while it lasts. Right. This is a temporary thing um, and that ultimately the results of this are going to come a cropper and Democrats are going to be forced to reconfront <laughs> the practical trade-offs that have always been, you know, it's a question of when, not if they will be allured back to uh, politics of austerity. And I, I think, you know, while that is a pretty like, cynical reason uh, approach to like thinking about this. I think that it is very close to if you look at the way that some of this legislation is written, especially the sunsets in the legislation. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, let's let's not get irrationally exuberant about this. But I mean, it says, you know, the the idea, enjoy it while it lasts. Like uh, <laughs> who who exactly is enjoying anything? I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think that really hits it on the head. Like, I I mean, that's part of why I bring up this thing of like, it, it seems like 
not even not the pandemic itself, but the idea of the pandemic is being put out to pasture. And you can see it in the fact that, you know, most of the provisions in these like in this new relief bill, which is being really, really like there, there's a very hard sell going on for it right now. And, I'm um, you know, not to discount, there are some like good things in here. There's a lot of improvements to like, sure. yeah, you know, that are that will like certainly help people, but almost universally everything uh does have you know a different sunset period it all reminds me a lot actually of the kind of like obama era affordable care act strategy in itself where like that whole like the whole the whole affordable care act itself was like sold as this idea of well people will like see the benefit and then they'll like want to have it or they'll want more or something even though even though everything in the affordable care act Mm -hmm. was like meant to like slowly ratchet down again you know Mm -hmm. it's like it's the same thing again where like you have you have the possibility to pass so much like if if there was the political willpower to do so like medicare for all could have been in this bill right Absolutely. in terms of just like i like you know don't don't fucking at me like i know like what like i don't want to hear your shit about joe manchin or whatever you know <laughs> this is there there are like huge changes that could have been permanent that could be part of this and this is just totally. and I think it's actually extremely telling to look at, especially this falling on the anniversary, basically on the anniversary of at least the WHO declaring it a pandemic. It's extremely telling to like look at how this becomes the response. No, I mean, I think that 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 point is, you know, don't at me about Joe Manchin. It's like that that is that is the signature thing that's important to recognize here, which is that, you know, it's possible to recognize that there are changes in this. But if you don't acknowledge that they're temporary and if you don't acknowledge the Elements of the political arena which haven't changed, uh, meaning like the existence of a mansion, the uh, existence of the filibuster, and the fact that you know, despite the fact that that the House seems to be quite capable now of pumping out uh, legislation that cinches together Democrats and does good things, that the Senate is this completely unreconstructed uh, body. So my point is like. Uh, it, to not acknowledge those things as I- impediments to change or to not acknowledge that, that that might dampen the idea that like, oh, Democrats are on a f- fundamental trajectory. Like, sh- show me how, if, if that's true, what exactly is being done about, you know, uh, the filibuster, right? That's I, I will be more likely to believe that argument when when per- when there is a procedural coalition on the floor of the Senate to do something about the filibuster. Right. And I think you're seeing this like really interesting discussion going back and forth when you've got sort of an anonymous commentary that's being referenced in a lot of the articles that are that are trying to offer like a a more holistic perspective of what this bill actually means in people's everyday lives where you have a lot of uh, like people point to the fact that, you know, Biden really supported welfare reform in the 90s. And this really undoes a lot, undoes a lot of that. And uh, you have these two framings. One is that that Biden has like uh, updated his views and learned. And the other framing is that Biden is responding to the circumstances of crisis. And I think it's like that is the sort of like thing that we're seeing in those two perspectives that you were mentioning earlier, Phil. And I think it's like part of this idea of like, 
oh, we'll come back and get those people that we left out on the second round. Right. You know, it's, it's what's justified in a crisis. Exactly. Specifically. Exactly. Yeah. And it's exactly like you're saying, Artie, where it's this idea of like, oh, well, you know, if we just put out a policy that gestures at what we want, that's the way to convince people to convince the majority to be behind it. And then we'll expand it. But that's the biggest lie in public policy. They never come back for the people they leave out ever to well, right. give me an example of when they have. I mean, but this is the thing is in order for that argument to work. I mean, I, I'm not saying that there's just there's no world in which that could happen. But what I'm saying is it, in order for that argument to work, you have to assume that the first thing first set of things that you do build or maintain enough political energy to continue to hold or expand institutional power. Right. And and that is where I'm I'm skeptical of the really optimistic sort of takes. I mean, you know, there are some really bright line things in this legislation that could have been done that I think would be more popular than what they ended up doing. Yeah. Um and you know, I think the the minimum you're raising the minimum wage to $15 is just sort of one uh bright line example of that, but um that to me is where I'm 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 skeptical of the idea that like there there'll be a recognition of uh, what's in this because in some cases you really have to ask the question of like what does this look like uh, for people uh, materially uh, on the ground especially as economic circumstances for people in uh, you know lower income strata just uh, you know decline as work as their work becomes precarious it's not like the rest of the world is staying constant right uh, yeah. the rest of the world is changing in ways that are not necessarily that. That, um, you know, helpful for most people. So, I mean, I actually think that the the place that you see this the most clearly is in what this piece of legislation did to the Affordable Care Act. Can we like, yeah, let's, can we talk about that? Let's get into that. Actually, that's that's exactly what I was just going to bring up, because I think that um, th- this is a really good example of kind of a, a lot of the problems in it. And the, for instance, like the sunset provisions that mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about are an example of how this is, you know, th- this is just meant as no matter how it's being like sold right now, so much of the stuff in this is just meant specifically like as a, we're going to temporarily do this mm-hmm. because pandemic. Mm-hmm. Otherwise we would, you know, th- like even if we may say that this is like within that, these are, you know, sort of, sort of our, our overall goals, this doesn't, you know, this doesn't match up. And so to, I mean, I guess to get into what, so let, let's look, I guess at what it does to the ACA specifically, or yeah, to get into the ACA stuff and, and a lot is being made of this, right? right. So here, here are the kind of like basic things that it does to the ACA, uh, again, temporarily. So the American rescue plan, uh, God, I hate that. I hate the name. Yep. Um, expands ACA subsidies for two years. Yep. Those are the years 2021 and 2022. So the year that we're in and next year. It's also been reported that in order to claim this increased subsidy for 2021, if you qualify in 2021 to have like if you have an ACA plan, right? Uh, if you have like an Affordable Care Act uh, marketplace plan and you qualify for an increased subsidy in 2021, you have to go to everyone's favorite website or you will have to. It doesn't. I guess the mechanism is probably not there yet and they're going to have to bake it in. But you will have to go to everyone's favorite website, healthcare, healthcare.gov. GoDaddy.com. <laughs> yeah, GoDaddy.com, <laughs> healthcare.gov um, and file to adjust your subsidy. I guarantee you most people will not do this. This is a huge problem. 
It's like, a difficult thing to do too because the website still fucking sucks. There are literally the the I mean because this is not an automatic you know because like unlike so many of the things that we advocate for this is not like a universal or automatic program like they already have like the Affordable Care Act created the role of like the exchange navigator right mm-hmm. to do this so you're basically asking people a couple months later to go back and be like let me it's etc anyway so i'm just you know not to not to digress too much but i do think that that is a huge problem some people will go ahead and do that other a lot of pe- other people just absolutely will not I, I guarantee it um the changes to the aca again temporarily uh also only for two years ends the uh quote-unquote subsidy cliff mm-hmm. so basically to qualify for go- you know government subsidies to the plans you would have to basically show when you're signing up for your health insurance that you are above uh 400 or sorry you are below 400 percent of poverty level now there's like no cap essentially um on like when you can qualify for a subsidy so no matter how much money you make you can uh qualify for a subsidy that will cap your the amount that you contribute to your premium your only health insurance premiums. premium only the premium at 8.5% of your income um again that's like the monthly amount the premium is the monthly amount you pay for right. your health care it's nothing there's no that's not like out of pocket drug costs other stuff it's not uncommon for these plans to have deductibles that are absolutely absurd like eleven thousand one hundred ninety four dollar deductibles for a family of four so and it's, stuff that is uh not subject to deductible exactly too. so but like just imagine like okay so capping 8.5 percent of premiums right that right. That means that like even under this subsidy, almost 10% of someone's annual net income would be towards premiums because eight point just towards premiums, right? That doesn't even count out-of-pocket costs, prescriptions, things that are out of network, the deductible, as you're saying already. Right. This is this is like that still is nearly 10% of people's income. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this is like it's it's worth like I've read some pieces that are like, wow, this is like a huge deal. And that like if you really understood and, and, and to me, it's like maybe one outlet called it universal health care. Right. I, mean, well, I want to get I want to get to God. why it's not in a second, because, well, let's just say now uh, if it doesn't put every single person in the same plan, uh, it is not universal. If there are still people with employer sponsored insurance. It's not universal, period. Like any other use of that term is a misuse of that term. Uh, Let's just get that out of the way. So editors, uh, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys, right? Like (laughs) don't let your writers grow up to use the term universal incorrectly. Um, The but the 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 thing that like people who are have had the unfortunate duty of like paying attention to the Affordable Care Act for the last, you know, uh, decade. They're like, no, 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 don't you see? Like, it's actually huge, which I guess, you know, if you've been looking at it and you actually know how monumentally screwed up this law was, I guess there are like irrationalities with baked within it that were so, so absurd that like <laughs> even like fixing, fixing those truly extreme and bizarre uh, irrationalities like this, like this benefit cliff that existed at 400% FPL where you either did or didn't, uh, not qualify for t- tax credits. So like states would try to keep 
premiums low, but because subsidies were based on this second lowest cost silver plan, uh, by doing like, by doing sounds that sounds like the rule of a card game. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> totally. like by by like uh, doing that, you actually like increase like decrease these the subsidies that were going to like lower income people. Like yes, okay, this was absurd, and you know eliminating this benefit cliff, it, at least it gets rid of like that most egregious uh, kind of thing. But that's like that's heavily. That's being like jokerified, like being weedsified, yeah. like mm-hmm. in this in this world. Because talk to any person, any person who has been on these uh, plans and and ask them, well, <laughs> you know, okay, well, what would it mean for you? Okay, no, 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 don't ask the people above four hundred percent FPL. Ask the people below it and ask them, yeah. like, hey, um. If you need medical care at all, like, what are you worried about? This is like, is it the premium? It's like, no, it's the fact that I know I'm never going to be able to afford like the cost sharing that it's just like, I look at the bill and it's, it's laughable. Um, so like, that's the point is like, why I'm not sure what the, the impulse is to look at this and say, (laughs) yeah, okay, this does, uh, not only is this just like a fix to this truly irrational thing that was in the legislation for reasons for reasons that don't make any sense at all or uh but but like it's not just that oh it's actually like you know i don't understand where that impulse comes from similarly i don't understand where the impulse comes from it's like it's not clear to me and maybe just there hasn't been great reporting on it like why not include changes to cost sharing what like yeah. it's like like I'm not sure like if they're really changing trajectory here, why not do the thing that is like the main way that people experience the cost of these plans, which is like at the pharmacist counter, at the doctor's office, cost sharing. Like I cannot believe that there's a change in trajectory, if especially if there's no change in, in cost sharing on these things. Right. And I think that's such an important point because the the hard costs, the fixed costs of an of an insurance plan are one thing, right? You can plan for that because you know what your premium is. Right. Even the deductible, arguably, you can say, I know what my deductible is. I know I need to like allocate so much money. I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but it's the cost sharing and the out-of-pocket and the patient responsibility that is really where people perceive their the value of their health insurance, not in those fixed costs, right? Those fix, fixed costs that you know up front fucking suck, but they don't fuck with your brain the same way as the things that you cannot plan for, you cannot anticipate for. I mean, there are years where I budget how many doctors I go to in a given month because I know I can only afford two doctors. So I'll like triage based on like an estimate of what my out-of-pocket costs will be, knowing that it could range from $120 to $750, depending on which specialist it is. You know what I mean? And like what that doctor wants to do once I'm there. Or for example, we'll literally sit and puzzle with friends over a bunch of formularies that they're picking from on an ACA exchange to see if they can afford their like eye surgery or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I have like walked through this process over the years where, you know, we essentially try and estimate like worst case scenario, how how many specialist visits do you need and what specialists and let's go through the charge masters in your area and try and get an idea of like what we're going to look at. And no one should have to do that work. And the one thing I just want to point out, too, about this is that 
the the framing of un- universal healthcare is absurd. If you look at what our good friends at the CBO have said <laughs> about the American Rescue Plan, their current estimates pre-pandemic were there were like 30 million, just under 30 million people in the United States were uninsured. Right? right? That has gone up as a result of the pandemic. But 1.3 million people are estimated to get access to insurance through this change. Only 1.3. So that still leaves at minimum like at least 25 million people. Right. Well, and even that framing, I think, is is pinned on this exact thing that we're talking about, which is who, you know, has insurance. There's no question of or even right. appears to be any understanding uh, or willingness to talk about, uh, you know, quote unquote, under insurance um, or the, you know, the idea basically that, you know, you have. Um, like a lot of, you know, for instance, the, the thing that I'm talking about, you know, you may have expanded your ACA subsidy for 2021. People may still have already signed up for, I don't know, like a bronze plan or something that, uh, for which like a huge amount of services are like not subject to the deductible at all and are done as like co-insurance where you're Mm -hmm. paying a percentage of the actual overall that the like whatever that like the hospital or the provider or whatever is charging so it's like you know again it's one of these things where yeah obviously it helps to it this this, it is a it yes it is a help for sure to decrease the amount that a bunch of people are going to pay for their premiums but it's not like you cannot sell this as (laughs) As like right. some some sort of transformational like change to the Affordable Care Act. This is yeah. I it's don't know. like cutting yourself really bad on like rusty metal and going to the emergency room and just like having the privilege of only being treated for the big cut because you already have a uh, tetanus booster. Well, and a pol- and as a policy band aid, it is one that in two years is timed to just fall off. It's so. absolute fucking bullshit. Right. I, I guess I just think that like you know there there are two kinds of lessons that people like drew from the Affordable Care Act. One, I and I've heard this said by people who, you know, should know better, but like one, one of the lessons is like, uh, well, we didn't sell it enough. And it's like, right. no, no. I mean, yeah, there's going to be a salesmanship problem where you have a policy that's this complicated and, and just wild, but that's a substance problem, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, you can't it, there are limits to what you can sell. People aren't dumb, right? <laughs> yeah. There are limits to what you can sell to people and, and expect them to be enthusiastic about. Um, and it, if you are still facing the kind of medical bills that people are facing and that uh, NPR care, b- pretends to like care about by having, um, uh, you know, this like the bill of the week uh, thing. <laughs> um, like if if you really want to be transformative or like you know it you have to you have like people are not number one they're either not very attentive to policy or they are attentive to the the fact that it's not helping them very much right and (laughs) so like you have you need a huge huge delta and this just isn't that so i'm I'm baffled by the idea that like it's somehow now our responsibility, like that that some progressive like journalists find it their like responsibility <laughs> to like hype this, uh, right. you know, change. And I'm, I'm again, I'm not saying don't describe some of the things that are in it because I think that's worthwhile. But like, 
change the damn lead. Yeah. This is not universalism. Yeah, don't lie. I mean, don't the, lie. Right. I mean, like Phil, to your Phil, to your point, like I mean, you know, pe- I, I think part of part of what happens there is people do assume that oh, people don't pay attention to the details of of policy or whatever, but. With few exceptions, it is the details of policy that hits you in the fucking face. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. it is the like this is the stuff that people like people do know and understand this stuff, even if they don't know necessarily like, you know, I'm not saying that everyone like perfectly understands like where this comes from or the crass motivations for a bunch of it. But like people do understand what it what is happening, like what happened. People understand what happens to them as a result of things that are that just seem cruel or unfair and let me just i mean to to that point like the you know the the idea that the aca didn't fail on its merits that the aca failed because of like some public relations problem mm-hmm. right they failed to like socially reproduce the idea that the aca was transformative and thus it wasn't like in you know it, it isn't like universally venerated or whatever let me let me just okay real example from the aca which i know a lot of our listeners will know very intimately um and we've brought up before but it's always worth bringing up again because not everyone knows not everyone ha- not everyone has an ACA plan or uses the the um the subsidies for example um Phil B let me sell you a bridge um <laughs> okay what would you say <laughs> if I told you you're gonna get a tax credit a subsidy on your ACA premium on your health insurance premium just the premium part and that's gonna be based on calculating your income probably based on like the previous year or what you expect to make this year. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the that year when you're covered, so full more than a year after you've signed up for this plan, we're going to look at your actual income. And if you actually made more, you're going to owe additional money back in taxes if you got a promotion or made or made a lot of freelance work or something. Sounds like a disincentive to work to me. <laughs> I mean... So you're telling me that uh, you're going to actively not give me the benefit of the doubt. Uh-huh. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And that's cool. what the ACA does. And, you know, to its credit, this like adorable care act here or whatever, the new, the new fucking, um, the adorable care act. <laughs> 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 that was like the worst pun I've ever made. I'm sorry. No. It just like slipped out and I was that's like, good. that didn't land. It's fine. No, I like anyway, it. But, no, no, no. It but so in the American rescue plan, you know, to its credit, I, they had, there is a provision that for the year 2020, <laughs> if that was the case, you don't like, if you, for instance, got, um, you know, if you were on unemployment for like the entire year and, you know, your, your income, uh, was like much, much bigger than you had estimated because of that or something like that, you know, but you know, like there could be a, a bunch of other cases like for the year 2020, if, if you made more than you said that you were probably going to, and thus like you would owe money back on your subsidy that will not count thanks to this like new legislation but again only for 2020 so this absurd thing that literally i guarantee when people get this extra tax liability because they made slightly too much money and then they owe a penalty or in some cases they like try and do the good thing and they change their plan to like show and then it you know it's like plans get canceled or whatever over this because like numbers get entered in wrong or something (laughs) and the insurance company makes a problem like this is a this is a thing that happens like the so just for the year 2020 this thing that people hate that i guarantee people like when people encounter it in the wild when they owe additional money it makes them hate the aca right we're going to take that away for one year you can experience what that's like for a year (laughs) 
Um, but then never again. And one year less than the extension of the subsidies. So we're going to extend yeah. the subsidies for two years, but right. only we're only going to like decriminalize the use of the and subsidies the extension for the of first additional year. Unemployment. It's I mean, ridiculous. I mean, what better indictment of the system than that contradiction? But like this, I mean. the cynical, the cynical version of this is like, you know, so you ask yourself the question, why is it the case? Like, why are these things in here? You know, is it and, and there are many. And the thing is, there's so many different explanations that trying to find one is fruitless and you're always going to be wrong to some extent. Right. So, you know, <laughs> what, like what matters is that we understand at least a few of them. Um, and like, you know, sure. One of them is like, you know, uh, this this process for passing legislation is is super uh, centralized and streamlined, right? So, like, on the one hand, that's good because, yeah, you can respond quickly or nimbly to something, right? But on the other hand, like, these provisions don't have time to be trotted out into the light of day. And the question ever has to be asked, like, is this can is this the best we can fucking do? <laughs> um, right, right. Like, well, that, that question never has to be asked when things are are so streamlined. So, you know, this sort of like the, the, the dark side of... Um, efficient legislative processes on the other hand the i think it's worth thinking about like what things like this the the kind of like the sunset and the like one year and two year kind of like uh drop-offs do functionally which is that they provide democrats with an opportunity to come back in and pass a new thing they can say to their constituents like hey we did this thing again right i mean that that is you know, I, I think that at least that that might be a sort of miasma of conventional wisdom. I, I think it's what what is baffling to me is what would be better selling to them like these little incremental fixes that you have to make every year and that everyone gets really worried, like, you know, ostensibly worried about it actually make people's experience of insurance worse or doing a good thing, whatever that might be. I mean, like there are many even even beneath Medicare for all or whatever, there are many ways that you could make this thing less odious, right? right. My thing is like if, if Democrats really cared about like making the ACA less uh, gross in the way that it worked, there are many, many ways that they could have done that. They chose to do this. And it's like, what do, do you really think that like, you know, swooping back in and like passing a, a sort of like a, an extender is going to be like, wh where do people get the idea that like that is the thing that you want to campaign on? Because right. you know, I, at the at, you know at the at the breakfast nook, you know, <laughs> on Main Street, US, I can't imagine it's like, oh, you know, I hated those Democrats, uh, all, all that Obama money, those Obama phones, but man, they passed that extender, and you know, <laughs> it's like or no, it's even more cynical than that. It's if they if I you know, but you know, if I don't vote for them, maybe they're not going to pass that extender again. They're not going to be able to pass that extender again, and thus you know, I mean, but then what that sounds like to me is a hostage situation. It's like rent seeking <laughs> subscription yeah, services exactly. or something like, you know, rent to own your furniture, or some bullshit like Pledge that. Pledge your vote in perpetuity. Or yeah. the other, I mean, the other thing is that, that I think is often so important to remember when you're talking about healthcare policy is the idea that people need to have skin in the game. And that to me is a way to force people's skin to be in the game, right? If you, um, the idea I think that a lot of people operate under when they work on stuff like this is that 
if you make it too good on people that they will just expect that going forward. Like it's like the, if you give a mouse a cookie approach to care allocation, and that's how we deal with everything. The idea is that if you give someone, if you give, if you make it too easy, then all of a sudden it'll be overused. Right. We make fun of that on this show constantly, but it is like a, a constant ideological theme across healthcare policy. And it really makes you, really makes you wonder why why is that so prevalent right why is that so prevalent why is this sort of mistrust of the general public when it comes to knowing how to take care of themselves so extreme why do we prefer to basically use private citizens as a way to funnel money to insurance companies rather than you know, just provisioning care according to need. It, it, it's based on this idea that like human beings are inherently selfish, greedy, and flawed, right? It's like this social Darwinist take of like, well, we've got to incentivize behavior because everyone's just like going to default to this sort of like uber consumption of healthcare because they are selfish and greedy, you know, whatever. The, the 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 thing that baffles me, right, is now obviously we've talked about this before. It's like health economists have just they've ruined many things, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and like healthcare being being one of them. But I think that the thing that's like am, not amusing, but uh, I, I think is is intriguing to me is you know in the early Trump era, and I think I may have mentioned this before. Like in the early Trump era, you had all these, you know, really posh like academics being like you know this problem of trust in government you know it's so damaging to democracy and like what we really have to do earnestly through the next decade it will be an important the most important project that americans can embark on (laughs) said in just that tone uh (laughs) is is restoring faith that people have that government you know works in their interest and it's like (laughs) how how on earth? <laughs> Definitely not is this anyone, way. <laughs> how on earth is anyone supposed to believe that when this is what you encounter? And how on earth is anyone supposed to believe that when the when what you are doing politically is not just tweaking the knobs on the dial that's called anomi, but you are also using federal money to prop up an industry that will not like it will work against the interests of the people that you're trying to cover uh, in these plans and will actively campaign to allow themselves to continue to do that in perpetuity. I mean, that, that that's what you're doing. That's the political effect of this. So, like, is this a transformation or is this, you know, in a way, uh, old wine in, in new bottles? And I mean, like the <laughs> the uh, the idea that like, oh, you know, well, there's some problems left, but we'll, we, we can regulate those away. You can't regulate these things away until you regulate the existence of these people away. I mean, that's that is, you know, it's a point that I have to rehearse over and over again. But it's just the the dilemma of the like the long brain is the more and more you understand about a policy, the less and less you understand about its politics. Yeah. I mean, it's been more than it's been what almost 13 years since the public option was killed right in 2009 and the fact that it's not included in this bill so far has not been claimed as a loss at all which i think is really interesting the way that people have you know portrayed this as like 
near universal coverage, as we've talked about, really just betrays what they mean by universal, which is this kind of like idea that everyone has the theoretical right to access. Right. And this has like been the policy vehicle that we've been using for 13 years to absolutely no success. Right. And it's it's like this is just further like enshrining this sort of access to affordable care into like policy architecture moving forward. And it limits like it limits the idea of like what we could even do going forward. Right. And and so much of this is like, yeah, maybe because AHIP like throws millions of dollars at Congress or whatever. But largely speaking, like the way that healthcare has changed over the last 10 years has gotten so incredibly violent and cruel. It dictates people's survival. I mean, I, I got a request to share a fundraising campaign this morning for a woman who's trying to fundraise for a, a lung transplant where the insurance will cover $250,000 of the $300,000 procedure. She finally like found a donor and now she has to come up with 50 grand. Jesus Christ. This is like totally normal. And people constantly think like and say to me all the time, like, oh, you know, I, it's too bad your IVIG is getting denied. Like, I wish you were so sick, like people who, you know, who need like organ transplants. And then and then the state would just step in and we need to expand that to to everybody's care. And I'm like, have you ever met anyone that's had an organ transplant? Because every friend of mine that's had one has had a huge bill that they had to show the hospital they could pay before the hospital would do the surgery. It's like, yeah, we talk about the organ waiting list as being a really big deal and and taking years, but no one ever talks about that money up front. Right. You know what I mean? And th- and these are the kinds of things that like every time there's a fix like this or a tweak, it just further enshrines this framing which is absolutely deadly into our our tradition and like into the norms of what policy is. And it's like based on this idea that like it's social Darwinism, right? It's survival of the fittest. It's like, we'll put the access there. It's on you to access it. Right. And that, that framing, like, as we talk about all the time, ignores, you know, how difficult it is to access, how expensive it is to use, how shitty these plans are. I mean, one in six claims for ACA plans are denied. That's enormous. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, I mean, that's that, 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 like just tattoo that statistic on, on your forehead. That's, <laughs> that's significant. Well, and on top of it, it's like, so listeners will know that we're no fan of the public option, for example. But I think that, you know, as, as I think B is right to, to bring this up in this context, because I can imagine considering all of the things that could have been done here, you know, as I mentioned, they have, you know, they, they passed this thing like along party lines, if there was the willpower to do it or whatever, you know, you could, there's quite a lot that you could do obviously in the other, uh, in the other provisions as well. But when, if we stick to healthcare, for example, to, to me, this seems to be using the pandemic essentially as an opportunity to pass this sort of temporary pandemic measure, say that Biden has, you know, fulfilled his campaign promise or whatever of, I want to like build on, the Affordable Care Act and like make, you know, improve, you know, improve the Affordable Care Act as opposed to like replacing it or something like that. And then, you know, when the time comes to be like, well, do you want to do something like a public option? It's like, no, we did healthcare. you know, Mm -hmm. we'll have to we'll have to revisit it in two years or whatever. You know, we'll have to revisit it to to see if we want to extend anything that we did there. But, you know, maybe not. 
Yeah. Maybe we won't. Maybe, maybe quote unquote, the economy <laughs> will be so much better then and we won't feel the, the need to, uh, to keep the subsidy cliff from reverting, for example, you know, maybe we won't feel the need to do that. And, and, you know, certainly, uh, like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get around to the public option, but that's going to be something we'll campaign on for, you know, in like 2024 or something like that. And in the meantime, it's just like all this really functionally does from, a policy perspective again you know not to totally downplay the fact that it will have like yes it will have be- positive benefit on some people yes however what this also does in the in the meantime is if you look at like the cobra subsidies for example which are extended until september paying 100 percent of people's cobra uh premiums basically um for just throwing in, for money at insurance companies right. just so, throwing cash at them lighting yes, it on this fire is guaranteeing and th- and throwing like this is a huge amount of money that is being basically gifted to insurance companies not to mention the fact that like you know while it's great uh, you know while while it's great that like the inc- that increased subsidies may make it more likely to make to have more people get insurance through a private insurer right at the same time those subsidies are money that is again yeah like be saying being lit on fire by the federal government sent to insurance companies who then will just like you know they're still going to be denying people's claims um and they and it gets to be used overall in in a moment like they gets to be used eventually to just like continue to build up stuff like fucking partnership for america's healthcare future and like fight against anything like who are like currently guns blazing for even a public option and just to just like i mean this is an obvious against a public option i mean right and this is an obvious point but i think it's worth mentioning also that insurance companies are not hurting right now they are making record profits because people are incentivized by a global public health crisis to maintain their insurance coverage and yet afraid to go to the doctor. So the utilization is down. Profits are up. And we are creating programs not to get people care, but to pass money through people's care to these companies through subsidies, the companies that are already making record profits. Like, Which is why, yeah, all of these pieces that just like, you know, these glowing uh, reviews of this this bill, I just, they read to me like that scene in Big Lebowski where it's like, this like new shit has like come to light. <laughs> you just don't know because you're like not privy to all this new shit. <laughs> I mean, there's a JAMA study that came out in January that showed, that compared ACA plans to Medicaid plans to look for, you know, what was the actual out of pocket impact on low-income people who use these. Um, ACA plans cost 83% more out of pocket than a Medicaid plan. Like 10 times the out of pocket costs. It's, it's wild. It's, it basically like it, it really, it really comes down to the fact that in each of these plans, most of them, you're paying a percentage of the charge master price. Right. And Medicaid and Medicare negotiate lower prices with hospitals. So what you're doing with these ACA plans, right, is you're making these plans that pay the same amount as these sort of large corporate funded healthcare plans. Right. And so all of that exponential increase that you see on the charge master, it's not necessarily being absorbed by the higher priced product. Right. Right. It's just passed through to the consumer at the end of the line. Right. Instead of creating, 
I don't know, you could create like a money follows the person, global budgeted, federal Medicaid slush fund and do a Medicaid buy-in, right? Like that could have been something that would have been doable under the circumstances of, say, you're responding to a pandemic. We know that Medicaid is more cost effective. Yes, there are very limited networks for Medicaid because they pay less and it's bullshit. But you could do something like I don't know, demand that if someone accepts Medicare for payment, they must accept Medicaid and you would have like you would increase healthcare access exponentially. But that is never on the table because that is not going to make money for health insurance companies. You could also like in again, and we pointed out this before, you could, you know, do something as simple as like increasing the FMAP or the federal like the federal right. percentage that yes. uh, that the the federal government pays of each state's, you know, Medicaid uh, like overall Medicaid budget, you could increase that 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 figure FMAP to one hundred one hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> also, without strings or something, and then you could, and then you basically have even more leeway to just you could you know you could drastically expand Medicaid. I don't think right. that that's a good you know. I personally don't think that that is like a good option, but that's certainly better than giving a bunch of fucking money to insurance companies. It's certainly better than relying on Cobra. Cobra is the least efficient way to provide medical care to people in need of it right and, now. And Cobra plans are astoundingly expensive. A ridiculous like, way to have to like pay for that like b was on what was your premium when you were on cobra sixteen hundred dollars a month right that for one person right right yeah. i mean and the thing is too like the, these these and these changes aren't super again regardless of like how detailed you you can get and your like analysis of this like these changes will not as a political matter be visible by the midterms it's very like i you know yeah. Get ready for like the Mr. Potato Head midterm, uh, you know, like that, you know, and, and that's what these this is, again, as many lessons as people may have learned, which I am doubtful about the politics of lesson drawing, um, because I think, you know, whatever uh, short term, <laughs> short term political memory is a thing. But, uh, you know, whatever it looks like in in the uh, at the 30,000 foot level, like, uh, like lesson drawing, this is not, I mean, this is not a lesson drawn. There's not a lesson drawn here about how to design policy that actually, uh, makes a meaningful dent because you, you know, if you get fired and you're on Cobra and you get, you know, you see, okay, well, premium's not there, but the, I still have this insane out of pocket. Like, are you going to exper- really experience that as a uh, like a huge change in the way that <laughs> things work? No, the way that you experience Cobra is like, I can't fucking believe I have to do this. Yeah. You know what? Actually, I, I misspoke. My my Cobra was fourteen hundred dollars a month and my ACA plan was sixteen hundred dollars a month. And afterwards, afterwards for those six months while I was waiting in my Medicare waiting period. Anyways, read the story I did for Libby's uh, newsletter, Sick yeah, Note. That gets out. into very the good. whole thing. Very, very good. But actually, Sicknote.co. Sicknote.co, exactly. So, you know, other than, obviously, the, you know, there's a lot more in this than it's not simply just a healthcare bill. But outside of the sort of healthcare provisions uh, within the American Rescue Plan, 
Sounds like um, a children's show about firefighters or something. Sh- sure. Yeah. Um, pa- Paw Patrol. Paw Patrol um, American Rescue Plan. Bite the Secret Service offer- Officer Edition. <laughs> um, the we, we did end up with some amount of uh, state and local aid in this as it passed. Correct? Right. Because we yeah, talked, we talked, I mean, we had talked th- last time a little bit about how or recently, um, I think in maybe our last public episode a little bit about how uh, there was this idea being sold that like state and local governments didn't need aid at all, actually. And it's interesting how even now after the passage, I feel like you see some people basically saying like, of course, they don't need aid, you know, the like the, these uh, it, it's it's a problem like it's just a problem of mismanagement or something like the the this national and international but this you know this this crisis that uh, befell us you know isn't a matter of money it's a matter of like <laughs> governance might or as well just say like those states don't need those money they're they're just degenerates they're just they're just asking for money they don't need they've got it all <laughs> under the couch cushions they're gonna spend that money on drugs and alcohol those states are yeah. welfare queens. <laughs> Yeah, welfare yeah, yeah. queens yeah the, the, the state's <laughs> welfare cadillac um the uh no i mean you know at one level these uh the arguments which i would add were not just made by republicans but you know oh, your yeah. your run-of-the-mill like moderate uh, democrats you had angus king you know saying things like this which to which i would say like beyond just the 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 problem it's like there's so many like small towns in Maine that like don't that didn't even like qualify for this this aid like it wasn't enough right, right? I mean that that's the thing to note like in the corona uh, this is a thing that people forget but like in the coronavirus relief fund the thing that passed in cares you you did not get the aid directly if you were a city that had less than uh, five hundred thousand people in it. Right. It was like you uh, had so, um, for I think for the most part, right. If it, if it was the situation with that, it was like money was given to the states, but then it was up to state governments to distribute it, which are you know famously really great at uh, you know pri- like prioritizing cities. I'm thinking of specifically like the situation of like oh New York in New, in New York State, oh, how people absolutely. always bitch about Albany or oh, whatever. And the, you know? Of course, these are the cities with the least amount of representation and like press power too. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to people in in Syracuse, which has, I mean, as a result of the sort of gradual depopulation of the area and sort of flight flight of industry and things like that, has been losing population for a while. It has less than five hundred thousand people in it, and you know, I was you know talking to some people who work with city government about uh, an issue where the they were waiting on aid from Albany, and I was like, "So, like, did you get it?" And they're like, "Oh yeah, we eventually got something, but it was like five months after the time where the thing needed to be implemented in the first place. Like, it, it was Christ. by the time that the aid finally came, and it didn't really come to the extent that we expected it. Like Albany sent us, despite us like writing letters, you know." talking to our people uh in the the legislature like albany is just like was completely uh out to launch it so like again that these are these are the problems that like just are are, like completely remain off the table but at the very least it's like the the idea that just like the fiction that uh 350 billion dollars was was not enough was like left you know sort of on the cutting room floor what did make it into the legislation though is you know in the aid packages that had been proposed before in in the house by democrats and even like the you know problem solvers caucus um, <laughs> they they didn't have these uh 
restrictions on it. I mean, they were like, you know, you can use this aid for, you know, whatever it is you you need it for. Right. Which I mean, at this point, I think is is crucial because what the argument is now like you can only use the aid for relief that, that's specifically related to the coronavirus pandemic, like aid to households, small businesses or nonprofits, aid to impacted industries like tourism, hospitality and travel, funding government services that reduced due to the pandemic hit to tax revenue. <laughs> I mean, so so the thing to, to note here is it makes no sense to say you have to show a link between COVID and the aid that you need now. Yeah, everything. It, it, it's completely overdetermined. Um, you know, what is it isn't related to the pandemic. Um, so what you do when you put those sort of like guardrails in is you just increase the length of time that it will take for governments to actually spend this money and to get it out. I mean, that was one of the things that, um, you know, among other things, like when the uh, in the stimulus that happened after the Great Recession, I mean, there was one of the things that even like the CBO said, they're like, yeah, this money and a lot of these things just didn't get out. Like four years right. later, the, the a lot of the spending like didn't happen because of because of restrictions like this, because of red tape like this. And it's just from the perspective of like trying to, um, you know, ensure that like local economies don't crater. That's exactly the thing that you don't want to do because it doesn't really matter. It doesn't, it doesn't make doesn't any really sense. Matter. It doesn't matter where they spend the money, frankly. No, you can't compartmentalize um, a pandemic. You know what I mean? Like everything, every dollar that a state and local entity spends, that any city, town, municipality spends right now is in relation to the pandemic because the pandemic is our baseline right now right, in the United and, States. Right. And this is why the, even the idea that like 350 billion is enough to me is absurd because from the beginning, I've always thought about this as like the reason you should be doing aid is not like to stimulate the economy, but is to deal with the externalities of having to shut like the external, like to avoid the externalities of not shutting down. Right. I mean, that that's like but no one no one appears to like share that belief. <laughs> um, but even but even on these terms, it's like, OK, you might say, fine. It'll be doesn't that mean it'll be like just just as easy to like justify um, the use of the A like based on the pandemic? And it's like, well, you have to remember, like there are lawyers involved and there is law involved and state local governments don't want to get like slapped by the OIG uh, saying that you're like misallocating. That sounds uh, very expensive too to try and organize like that type of. I, I don't know. I can't imagine that cities have like a cadre of lawyers on hand at all times, especially small cities. You know what I mean? Like it actually it's funny how much the, the things that you're describing remind me of my experience applying for like benefits and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. You know, I feel a lot of solidarity with municipalities. Right <laughs> well, it's funny because I think there's this long history of like, you know, the way that cr people even criticize um you know, you'll see some some like New York Magazine article just like look at all of these Republican <laughs> Republican states that are dependent on uh, federal aid and like the language of dependency. And like our friend of the show, Karen Taney, has like written about this. Uh, you know, the language of dependency gets applied to states and people. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you see that. So like it, it emerges around the same time. But um, it's it. And in the same way, it is a completely nonsensical from the perspective of like 
economic policy. Like it really, I, I can't emphasize enough. It really doesn't matter how local and state governments spend this money. They yeah. need to spend it. That's well, the key thing. And in the meantime, while you're hemming and hawing about like, you know, how much and what to send them and how to, and you know, or while you are, um, saying like, Oh no, we'll, we'll do it as a distributive mechanism, like through States and not do worry about doing anything to like, make sure that that actually gets, uh, you know, distributed within the States actually to like smaller cities, smaller municipalities, like what happens in all those places, except for like, by the time any money gets to them, if it does at all, like layoffs have happened, like public sector layoffs have happened. Right. And what happens when public sector layoffs happen, like that often includes like already underpaid and understaffed like public health employees um like we've already seen the amount of testing uh like covid testing itself like go down a ton right like all of this has like all of these extenuating effects which then even like ripple back up in terms of like what our idea of the pandemic itself is yeah i mean this is the thing is like the big republican line now that you're gonna hear and there was like, yeah, you'll hear like long interviews, like even on NPR about this, like uh, the Republican line now is like only 9% of this aid is coronavirus related. It's like, mm. yeah, I'm not sure what that, you know, where you get that. But like the, 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 the amusing thing to me is Democrats reinforce this logic by putting provisions like this in, in the bill. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. that, that, that it's just like the idea that you can like draw a line and say this is and isn't related. And it's like, of course, you know, any city that's you know or or state that's like sufficiently entrepreneurial is going to be able to like whatever circumvent that but the point is when you have it there to begin with like that's the problem and and more than that because it's going to take longer to spend out the money and because these restrictions have been such a barrier to spending it out in the first place it helps to maintain the fiction that that they don't need it because if you don't (laughs) spend it it shows up as unspent money in the data. So then it just like perpetuates <laughs> this idea that they don't, it is, it is like the biggest, like uh very fixable catch 22. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I think it's just like indicative of how we've approached problem solving in any sector right now, which is just like the, there's this, like the constant perception that somehow like, these public entities are inept and that the only real way to manage this stuff is through public private partnerships. And it's just a process of like enriching these rent seeking corporations who like manage and gatekeep all these little systems of, you know, survival, which like ultimately like never seems to benefit the people that are being named as the target of the benefit in the first place. Like the material impact of people's lives on people's lives of these policies is like very hard to feel because if you pass a bill, say it's the greatest thing in the world, say that all this money is going to the local government, the local government can't access it. Like, what do you, what does that make you feel as an individual who lives under that local government, right? Like it's, it's total abandonment. It's alienation. It's distrust of where that money went. It's, it's, it's being overpromised and underdelivered. And this has been a theme of like Biden's entire career. So I'm not surprised that we're getting it right now, but it's, it's just absolutely the wrong way to be doing all of this. Yeah. And then importantly, like all of the myriad claims that, you know, like th- this is some sort of, you know, massive about face of <laughs> Biden uh, in terms of like some sort of like, I don't know, come to Jesus He's moment about how ways. like, yeah, he thinks about welfare differently or something like that. Which he are, said he you was know, sorry. Repeated. He said he wouldn't do it again. Yeah. Like, and then, you know, all, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate because like you see you see some you just like for, from top to bottom for everything like wh- whether it's like 
welfare for cities, I guess, <laughs> or, uh, you know, welfare for uh, people via insurance companies, like with the insurance company as a very apparently necessary pass through. Um, you know, you, you like see this in some places just like flatly stated, like reported as though it's not some sort of like interpretive opinion. And then you also see it like quite literally, I don't know if you've had the distinct displeasure of hurting your harming yourself by, uh, like going onto one of the, uh, pod save America guys sub stacks recently, but there is mm. literally a, a, oh, a post by who uh, hates themselves this much i because <laughs> i thought i i had the self-loathing uh thing but uh apparently like i can this, this is all new, yeah. all new levels wow but um, congrats king <laughs> but the there is literally a, a recent post from dan pfeiffer of uh the pod save america crowd called here's how to help sell the american rescue plan and it is literally all about how you can spin it and like to your to your family that's what's wrong with all these people they think that the that that pr is the thing but politics is not public relations people i don't care how many fucking adam curtis documentaries you've watched or have pretended to watch (laughs) like (laughs) (laughs) anyway that's good god no i i yeah i think the the place where that comes up for me here is that like as you get further and further away from our initial failures um to make it possible to have something like a you know paid or heavily subsidized like shutdown in any way it's going to become more m- mystical why there's a legitimacy crisis and it's just like well like the explanation turns into like a very adam courtesy it was like they could no longer uh, changed the world so they only were able to ma- they realized that they were only able to manage it and it's uh, it doesn't it doesn't actually show that no there was a moment in which in fact it was quite feasible uh to do these things and uh and now what happened is the federal government created a, ser- a, a series of potential uh opportunity for like 50 little legitimacy crises and we haven't seen we have not seen the end of it we're only like the the recall thing of newsom that's just the beginning yeah mm-hmm. uh because as as states begin to like wrestle with some of the uglier choices that will emerge i mean like i really think that uh the extended uh medicaid um like fmap that cuts off you know, unless it's renewed, like in in a few years, I think twenty twenty three, it just gets zeroed out. Yeah, uh, that is gonna be a humdinger. Gonna be uh, for yeah, some states. So just I mean, like pure horror. Yeah, I mean, if you want, if you want to, like, if you want a dystopian novel, go through any piece of coronavirus legislation and look at the sunset dates for mm-hmm. a lot of the key provisions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you want to keep yourself up at night. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Become a patron. Patrons get a discount on all of our merch and you get access to the entire back catalog of episodes. Again, our patron episode from Monday was fantastic. We had Abby Cardis and uh, Abdullah Shihapar on to talk about paid shutdowns. So support us at patreon.com slash death panel pod. Yep. All right. 
And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
Yeah, big day for whoever. <laughs> for the world, Someone's celebrating Artie, for the somewhere. whole world. Yeah. What, what is the sound of the invisible hand clapping? <laughs> <laughs>